Opera Class. Sports Radio Class. This is Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week on America's Talk Radio Show about Opera by Oliver Camacho. Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. It's a full house as we play Texas Hold'em and join the Dallas Opera Network. All right, on the show this week, opera, sports, sports, opera. Not as far apart as you might think. The OBS team tells you why. And then Matt Cummings revisits the induction of a beloved mezzo-soprano into the OBS Hall of Fame Find out whose portrait gets to line the hallowed halls of Operaland's HQ. In the two-minute drill, more season announcements in one week than I've heard in the last six months. Great team on the show this week. Oliver Camacho. Hello, our new viewers. This is what we look like. You've been listening to us for five years. You never <laughs> realized how old Don't do I now. am. <laughs> and we should say uh, to all of our listeners who are listening to this uh, with just the podcast-only version, make sure you seek out the Dallas Opera Network. Uh, they should be pretty easy to find, and you can see our beautiful, beautiful faces. Or just, you know, not watch them and just imagine that we're all like 12 times more handsome and beautiful than we actually are. That's the voice of Weston Williams. Matt Cummings, <laughs> you got to love a classic Steelers-Brown smackdown, am I right? I do. It takes me right back to high school when that was all anyone was posting on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> Ashley Hardgrave as well. What's Is this a weird time for you in football? It is a weird time because all my teams are doing well. Um, the Chicago Bears are doing well. The Arkansas Razorbacks are doing well. I repeat, the Razorbacks are doing well. Well, I know I'm as confused as the next person. We got a code red. Just for the record, <laughs> um, Facebook did not exist when I was in high school. Thank you. Same. Oh, my God. I was wondering if anybody else was going to admit to that. Well, that when when uh, Oliver was in high school, it was still the Ice Age. So <laughs> it wasn't it, was... it wasn't public yet. You still needed a school email address to get on it. <laughs> the computers were called Commodores when I was in high school. So. Oh, yes. <laughs> I remember 64, the Commodore so. 64. That's right. Last but not least, of course, the Tampa uh, Bay Rays get rid of the Houston Astros and move on to the World Series. Does anyone actually like the Houston Astros? Are they not the next Yankees of baseball after all of their corrupt wheelings and dealings last season? Please I mean, tell that, me if you were sorry to see them go. That's more like the Patriots of baseball. <laughs> well, I, I can I can say with certainty that whatever the opinion of Dallas is, that's my opinion now on the matter. That's right. We are Team Dallas, although they don't have a baseball team. <laughs> Let's talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. All right, Opera Box Score and a great crew on the show this week. This is our sixth season. Six years of wrestling with the idea that Opera and sports may have more in common than you might think. And I want to run through our panel and have everybody uh, take a bite at the apple as what is the moment of intersection for them between opera and sports? I'm going to kick it off. For me as a stage director, I believe that sports is perhaps the last place in our culture 
that we have true drama. The only other place which we might have drama is, of course, the theater and opera. When you look at a sporting event, you know that the ending has not been written. When you, Even when you go see an opera or a play, you know that even if you don't know what's going to happen, an ending has been written. But in sports, that is not the case. It's the final frontier for drama. Secondly, the fan base of opera are perhaps more insane and more crazy <laughs> than the fan base of sports. And sports nuts are pretty crazy. As you get to know us all, you're going to get to know all of our teams and our sports that we love. But for me, the fa crazy fan bases for both of these art forms, and yes, I consider sports to be an art form, just like I consider opera to be an athletic event. The fan mm. bases for me are something else. Oliver Camacho, my right-hand man, our creative consultant with such a deep knowledge of the technical side of the game. Oliver, what's your overlap between sports and opera? Well, I love the game. And the sport that is most uh, that I, I have the most attraction to is tennis because uh, it really is about the player. And it's really about like the grace of the game and the beauty of the game and the athleticism. It's it's also about hitting a little yellow ball over a net. That's um, true. I've read that. And the most that. adorable yeah. outfits. Um, but um, no, <laughs> I'm crazy about individual athletes, and I love thinking about um, individual singers as athletes. And you can compare them to you know tennis players or to like Olympic gymnasts or Olympic figure skaters. There's so many parallels in the amount of skill and grace and art you have to present simultaneously. And because tennis is such an important sport to me, I sort of think of myself as like the Bud Collins because I'm old <laughs> compared to all of you guys. <laughs> and I've been doing this for a very long time. And I think I might have the best wardrobe out of the men on this panel. I won't speak for Ashley. Yeah, that's... that's um, I mean, that's, that's not really true. Bar. Like, in, I mean, this this shirt is this is a <laughs> in terms of like the gay community. I don't have the best wardrobe, but in terms of opera box score panel, I probably have the best wardrobe. Um, or maybe I'm like the Bob Costas, you know, just like that nice guy, the elder statesman. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, but I'm like I'm crazy about the technique. I'm crazy about style and. Because I'm an old timer, I really do love early music. Talk to me about Baroque opera. It's true, Oliver. I really do see you as Bob Costas. I want you sitting next to Brown a fireplace <laughs> at the at the Winter Games. Matt Cummings, our resident historian and archivist, what's your intersection between sports and opera? So it's definitely like kind of an intersection with Oliver's too, in that I approach my archive as a player's coach. Like, I really care about each individual person who makes a contribution to this art form in a way that like the historians of opera tend to kind of overlook. Um, and what that allows me to do is like what I what I really enjoy doing about opera is like putting what we're seeing today into historical context about when it happened and how we got there. Um, and it's kind of like the difference between, uh, you know, we'll talk about, Bob, we'll go with Bob Costas. We'll talk about the Olympics. If you watch Nadia Comaneci's Perfect 10 bars routine from 76 Olympics, and then watched like Simone Biles's anything from the Rio Olympics, those are basically <laughs> different sports 40 years later. Right. Uh, and 
looking at those athletes who are so good, so dominant, so important that they have to change the rules of the sport in order to make it fair for other people. You know, your Tigers Woods, your Kareem's Abdul-Jabbar, your Will Chamberlain. Um, like, who are who are our singers, who are our directors that kind of play that same role? You could say, like, Callis is your slam dunk there, but you, if you go back in time, you can talk about Enrico Caruso and how much influence he had over the operas at the beginning of the 20th century, or, like, someone like Rockwell Blake, who isn't a singer that you necessarily know unless you're, like, deep into the opera archives, but, like, is part of the reason why there are so many Rossini tenors, like, alive and kicking today. Um, And just the way that, like, those individual choices, individual careers can have a macro effect on the entire opera world is fascinating to me. Um, And that's how we can try to learn from the past and get ahead get ahead of it too i'm stuck in the past by the way so <laughs> keep Matt, that you are so contemporary arti- stuff away from me so. <laughs> that you're so articulate and and so erudite so i wanted to switch to something a little different and introduce weston <laughs> that's me i'm a little different uh well a big I've difference always, we love very different <laughs> I've always been into like the outliers of the music world. So you've got your like your Verdi and Puccini and your Mozart, and they're great. They're basically like your football, basketball, and baseball of the opera world. But I want to like look at like your 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 luges, your skeletons, your um, Eastern European your, your slapping contests, <laughs> your X Games, your curling, all that weird stuff. Sort of the Alban Berg of the uh, <laughs> of the musical world. I mean. I remember when I was uh, much younger, um, uh, when when Oliver was merely in his late seventies, uh, uh, and uh, this uh, and there was a big sort of controversy controversy leading up to the two thousand two Olympic Games, where um, this is the Winter Olympics, where they wanted to bring back the luge. Uh, not the luge, the skeleton, which is sort of the luge, but backwards with your chin like the scary luge. The <laughs> I did scary have, luge. I did actually have Weston mentioning skeleton on my OBS bingo card. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> and really, that's what I love. You know, it's it's all of that uh, in opera. Uh, there's so much room for experimentation and like pushing things to the emotional extreme. My favorite composer, uh, Richard Strauss, really broke with the notion of form and really leaned into like these uh, in Zalame and Electra, these really bloody excesses that I really, really in- enjoy. And uh, and from that's there, your morning listening. All the yeah, exactly. And then you can get into like, the really weird stuff. You can get into like the the electronics. Like I was thinking a little bit about esports. You know, that's a new whole genre of sport. What, uh, what about like Todd Macover's Death and the Powers, which is like the robot opera where all got all the robots on stage. All the really experimental uh, microtonal stuff, or like weird, like genre mashing, like in uh, uh, a Stefan Volpa's Zeus and Alida for a deep cut for all you early twentieth century stands out there. <laughs> yeah, that that opera is so good. I'm gonna do a segment on it one day. There's a Reddit um, thread like, somewhere on this. <laughs> but like, I've always been of the opinion that just because a sport or an opera is not the most popular doesn't mean it's not worth something. And often the reason they're not heard as much is just as interesting a conversation to have 
as the opera itself. And so even though we love our Mozarts and our Verdis, I want to bring in some Rauta Vaara every so often. And I think that's a really good thing to bring to the table because in my experience, popularity is never in itself a, a mark of that a piece of art or a sport is worth watching. I think you meant to say we love our Wolfgang's Mozart and our Giuseppe's Verdi. <laughs> our Giuseppe's We're going to keep will, doing that all through the I will sentence. make a regular plurals a thing. <laughs> yes. It is my singular quest in life. My head is swimming at all of these regular plurals. Last but by no means least, part of our OBS family is Ashley Hardgrave, your cool aunt. Um, and also, I feel like our our sideline reporter. What, what would you say to that, Ashley? I would absolutely agree with that. Kind of a uh, kind of an Aaron Andrews, Jamel Hill, if they had a baby. Uh, you know, I, I like to think of myself as like an advocate and a cool aunt. It's like I'm rooting for you, Opera, because I love you and and we're family. But. I know you got some flaws and you could be making so many better choices. And I am who you call to come pick you up when you've been out too late. And <laughs> honey, I'm not mad. I'm just a little disappointed. Um, and in wanting you to be better, I am paying close attention to who gets seats at your table. And more importantly, who is not. Uh, I am pushing you to buy a bigger table so that underrepresented communities can come and join us and sit down. Uh, voice to the previously voiceless pun. Absolutely mm. intended. Um, you're worth saving, and there's room for everybody at the right kind of table, which is something you will hear me say more than once. Uh, you have meant so much to me, and I want to share your timeless joy with the world. Um, I want to advocate for you so that you can progress with the times and thrive. And that was a great speech. What does it have to do with sports? Um, like, <laughs> like our coach George says, uh, you know, you can think of me as like the sideline reporter, the commentator. Again, the Aaron Andrews, Jamel Hill combo. Um, I'm bringing an insider look into this game, but I'm calling out foolishness when it's necessary, even if it's on my own team. Think this is how they're feeling. This is what's going on emotionally and internally. And here's how it relates to what's going on sociopolitically in the world. Oh, and here are the houses who are pretty much behind the times in everything. Um, like my teammates have shown you, there are a lot of parallels between sports and opera. You know, we think about the struggle for representation and the possible career ending results for some of that activism. You know, we've got our Marian Andersons and our Robert McFerrins in our art form and great black artists that came after them, especially the folks that you see and that we talk a lot about now. Your Karen Slacks, your, your Russell's Thomas, your Larry's Brownlee. Um, you know, sports had in the same timeline, Jackie Robinson, John Carlos, Tommy Smith, and Bill Russell, and their presence led to folks like these athlete activists that we see now. Some of them are lauded and celebrated like LeBron and Serena, and some of them are almost fully silenced and erased like your Craig Hodges and your Collins Kaepernick. And for a long time, we had some folks hidden in plain sight. You know, the Peter Peers and the Ben Brittons gave way for a pretty open and welcoming community right now of LGBTQ performers. You know, lots of them are there, but a couple to name are Jamie Barton, friend of the show, Lucia Lucas. And we're finally seeing sports catch up to us for once, you know, and now we're seeing visibility mm -hmm. in LGBTQ for them. Jason Collins, Michael Sam, Cheryl Swoops, Megan Rapino. Also, pro sports sell seats and endorsements. And college and farm teams sell love of the game. Not unlike how big arena operas will do Boheme bigger and better than anyone, but all the time. 
and how storefronts will give you a true exploration of where that art can go and take it further. You know, how big European houses like Deutschoppers or Wiener Staatsoppers, they've advanced their repertoires, but they haven't necessarily advanced the cause of racial equality. Both sports and opera, they've got a lot to love. They got a lot to improve. And I'm going to be here with sassy one-liners and <laughs> dress downs and Stadler and Waldorf commentary in the back to take them to task. <laughs> also, go register to vote. Thank you. Good night. George, before you um, wrap up this segment, I just want to say that as the Bob Costas of this show, uh, <laughs> for some reason, I have this ability to get people to come on our show and be interviewed. And if you look back at our archives, you'll see that we have interviewed the likes of Jakub Josef Orlinski, Matthew Polanzani, Tamara Wilson, Patricia Rossette. There are so many important personalities that are working in the opera field today that have been interviewed on this show. And we hope to present more of those interviews uh, going forward. And now they'll have to agree to be on camera <laughs> as well. So we'll see how that goes. So. The uh, mini Hall of Fame coming up in just a few minutes. I'm going to wrap up the segment and tie it back into sports, opera, and the coronavirus. All right, here we go. Sports has, in some ways, successfully managed to weather this pandemic. The NBA bubble has done a great job. Major League Baseball did a lousy job. The jury is still out on the NFL. I think when we look at opera houses and institutions, we're seeing a wide variety of responses and of a wide variety of successes. My question is, though, my challenge to opera is can they be more like the NBA? What are the challenges they're facing to bubble their artists and to make art successfully with those artists and then find a way to share it with the general public. If it can be done in sports, I think it can be done in opera as well. Your lips to goddess, deity, and uh, a religious folks' ears. <laughs> Amen. And now, ladies and gentlemen, this is OBS Hall of Famer, our enthusiastic, yet humble, salute to a distinguished opera artist who has gone above and beyond to contribute greatly, distinctively, and with grand significance to the art and honor of opera. The OBS Hall of Fame, one of the most hallowed institutions in all of opera land, perhaps in all of sports as well, curated by our panelists throughout our seasons. Tonight, we revisit an inductee, Matt Cummings. Tell us who, tell us why. There was a flurry of lobbyists trying to figure out who would get this coveted spot. <laughs> but the winner is going to be my personal bay, Shirley Barrett. Oh. Um, it is one of the voices that hers is one of the voices that I just absolutely fell head over heels in love with. It's spicy, it's passionate, it's versatile, but it even remains human uh, when she's able to toss off these incredibly difficult phrases. Um, I got to the chance to do a longer Hall of Fame about her when my hair was about six inches shorter uh, pre-COVID. Um, <laughs> but her tremendously long career and resume which lasted from the late 50s until the early 90s is a model of what it means to be an outstanding modern american opera singer um 
She made a number of important debuts. Uh, her her debut role was Carmen, uh, and it was featured on a pirate recording, but never made in a studio because, as you probably know about Shirley Verrett, she wa- is was African American, uh, and she was part of that same class of singers like Leontine Price, uh, Robert McFerrin, who were on the vanguard of integration and in opera. While she did have uh, an exclusive contract with RCA, that it didn't work out uh, partially because of competition within those singers. But some of the recordings of her that we do have are absolutely stunning. Uh, and one of my favorite opera recordings of all time is the um, Abado Macbeth recording, where she sings Lady Macbeth with Piero Cappuccilli. Um, and this, you know, sometimes when you listen to a studio recording, you'll be like, well, this was all, you know, this was all bumped up. This was smoothed over. This is just splices from a million different takes. Not so here, because Shirley Verrett can and did do it live time and time again. Uh, so tonight we're gonna in, we're gonna investigate clips from the 1975 La Scala production of Macbeth, uh, where Shirley Verrett starred as Lady Macbeth, and this was the production that gave her the nickname in the Italian press of the Black Callus because of the. Uh, just the intensity of her singing, her commitment to the role, and an unbelievable performance that she delivers here. She really made a name for herself with these rich and dramatic Verdi mezzo roles, uh, and I think it's just it just has to do with her voice and where it lies, and how strong her ranges from absolutely top to bottom, and her dramatic instincts just make uh, they're a match made in heaven. That's all I can say. Um, so. I think we should, I think of that, I've talked enough, and we should kick it to Shirley to make the case for herself. Uh, and this is a clip from uh, Lady Macbeth's opening aria, Vienita Fretta, launching into the cabaletta. I want to just jump in and and first of all, unmute your mic because I muted you all, Um, that there's so much to love about this clip. Um, She is definitely helped by the cape and by the hairdo. 
Um, the and, the but, reviews of this production <laughs> called out the cape work specifically. <laughs> Her eyes, she yeah. could play but that that's the okay. So the, the hairdo actually is like a little curtain. It's a little proscenium for her eyebrows. So you're watching her eyes so much, and just the weight that she puts on the back of her heels. And this is something that George, you probably teach your your cast when you're directing opera. But the way to show power on stage is to never lean forward, is to always lean back, you know? So people are coming to you and you're not going to them, you know? And she does that so much, just like that, I smell poop, you know? <laughs> that kind of arrogance and power. <laughs> and then the cape just adds so much histrionics and just holding those super artificial poses. I love artifice. We come to opera for artifice and you have to go for it. And she does it so convincingly without any kind of embarrassment that she's doing that type of stuff it's like yes this looks really strange in real life but in opera it looks really cool and she's not afraid of the power of that stillness i think the economy of gesture really comes through in this video because she strikes a pose and she holds it but it it stays alive um when I, when I watched this video, I had a really hard time picking which 90 seconds of it I wanted to show because really the whole thing is gold. And the reason why I picked this section is that line right at the very beginning where she says, Duncan will be here. And she says the word here, qui, three times in a row. And each one is 100% different than the one that came before it. And she uses it to launch through that transitional section of the aria into the exciting cabaletta so well. That's a masterclass in how to do those multi-part arias. I know Ashley is you know, champing at the champing. bit here to say something. <laughs> it's it, it brings back a lot of a lot of memories for me. Um, fun fact: when I uh, when I had to learn Lady Macbeth to be part of the play masterclass, uh, it was Shirley Verrett's recordings that I used both as audio inspirations and and visual inspirations. She uh, she has just the right amount of crazy uh, that is necessary for this moment. This is the moment when Lady Macbeth, this aria is when she really begins to understand the power that she is about to have. And so it's almost, she doesn't fully believe it yet until the very end. And right when we get to the Ortuti Sorgete, that's that's really when it's coming coming to pass and she's beginning to understand. And it's intoxicating, it's intoxicating, you know. It is fully intoxicating, both as a singer and as an audience member. Like those moments when you realize that she's getting it, it's 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 magical. It's magical. And so the video is going to be hilarious for folks because I am singing along and rocking out. <laughs> and it's basically the, the Verdi version of the Unsex Me Here monologue from the Shakespeare. <laughs> so it's like that's an iconic theater moment that you're driving, that she is able to drive home even without those exact words. Um, let's... Dive, dive, dive right into the second clip, which is uh, from the second aria in Act Two, La Luce Langue. Thank <laughs> you. 
tell me that the people who go crazy after that clip are any different from nutty sports fans. It's amazing listening to that clip. If you listen super closely, it sounds like the guy in the prompt box is listening to some Italian soccer match on his transistor radio. Yeah, I don't know where that extra sound is coming from. Commentary in the background. I think we're writing a, a, a TV soundwave of a soccer match, which is might be the most on-brand thing we've ever played on this show. <laughs> and you can hear it because she has range of dynamics for days. You know, phenomenal. You, some people who have criticized her singing would say that it was driven, and I want to respond to that. Like, did you? How much of her singing did you ever listen to? Because she has absolute <laughs> control over her voice from the very tiniest pianissimo all the way up to those huge outbursts um and just the fierceness that comes through in this performance she's stalking around the stage like a lioness um using her voice like a club to hit Macbeth over the head because he's being so stupid and able to be melodramatic without overly witchy and i mean melodramatic in that like she's using the sound and the and and the artifice to increase the drama and that way the way that she brings her hand down at the very end for kadra which means will fall like that's you don't even have to know that that parallel is there for it to land with you once again we also have excellent cape work as well i want to make sure that we talk about the costume change and the excellent cape work i will say one (laughs) thing here is that i i get very concerned about the use of chess voice uh especially when it's coming from a very forceful character and once again speaking to her delicacy it's there it feels forceful it takes you back for a moment but it doesn't sound out of place and again i think that just adds to her artistry and finesse so um last season on opera box score we talked about uh sandra budvanovsky's um Canadian Opera Company, I think, um, debut Philadelphia. as... Uh, Opera Philadelphia. Oh, thank you. Um, debut as Lady Macbeth. And this role is, it's just a voice wrecker. I mean, there's so many declamatory moments that, you know, you have to sing in this opera. There are some gorgeous lyrical moments, but there are opportunities to really just shred. And to think that Verrett sang this role and also sang things that had really lyrical lines where beauty of tone was super important like aida you know um or norma you know and at at, dalila yeah yeah and some people who sing lady Macbeth, it's like they're saying okay well going forward i'm just going to be this type of singer screw all that pretty singing you know (laughs) um and she i mean you could also see it in her body like there's a temptation to lock the body when you have these very declamatory moments and even when she had powerful hands there was still a little bit of femininity in them, you know? It wasn't just lock, you know? It was gorgeous power, you know? And yeah, the cape work and the teeth, gnashing of the teeth, it's like, oh, give it <laughs> to me. Eye acting. Well, Matt, you don't get inducted into the OBS Hall of Fame, just like in any other Hall of Fame, just for your actions on the field. What about off the field and off the stage? What's your case for Shirley Verrett? So I think that that same boldness that comes through when her singing really came through with her work as an advocate as well. And part of the reason why um, her career didn't flourish as much as it could have even further uh, is just that she was so bold and outspoken almost to a fault. She wouldn't appear in front of segregated audiences. She refused to uh, do performances for apartheid South Africa. 
Uh, and she said in an interview in 1976, when we can see a black man standing next to a white woman singing a love duet without people cringing, I think we will have made it into the human race. Just the, mm. the things that she was dealing with, the things that she had to overcome and that she was able to become an avatar for for the next generation is just a really amazing endorsement of her work as an artist and as a human being. All right. You're going to want to watch future shows and listen to them as well. Looking for future inductees into the OBS Hall of Fame. In the meantime, make sure that you subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, or you can favorite on Stitcher. You can subscribe to SoundCloud. And of course, you can tell us who you think should be in the Hall of Fame. You just email us, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Before we leave, um, can we just remember who has been inducted into the Hall of Fame so our new listeners can go back into the archives because they're going to Mm. smash that um, favorites button, button. <laughs> on Stitcher or <laughs> Apple Podcast. So, Matt, who have been your previous inductees? I have also inducted Leontine Price and Fritz Wunderlich. And uh, the Jesse Norman tribute, I think, also fell under Hall of Fame. Absolutely. Um, Weston, here you go. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, let's see. I did John Adams. I did uh, um, one specific recording of <laughs> of, of, uh, of Zal of May. It was Electra. One of the two. They're both excellent. It was Electra, um, I think, yeah. I think it was Electra, yeah. yes. Um, and I I did some others. It was like a Russian one recently, wasn't there? Like yeah, Mazorsky, okay. I believe. Or was it Shostakovich? Maybe it was both. Yeah. I need to go back into the archives yeah. and find them myself. And then we Toby had... Did, Toby did Pavarotti. Pavarotti. Uh, and then and Franco Corelli, I thought. Or just Pavarotti. Uh, yeah, I believe so, yes. Well, he just Guys, talked about Franco Corelli. you're so. forgetting the most important one. Beverly we, freaking Sills. Yes. We saved the Bubbles. best for last. Yeah. And I believe I did one on Marilyn Horn and I think on Kiri Takanwa as the Countess in Mozart's Marriage Figaro. Ooh, oh, I'll ca- allow it, yeah. Caballé, too. We did a Caballé? Oh, yes, oh, yes Caballé. Okay. And George had some weird one. Was it? I don't, I don't know Benjamin if I... Britten. Uh, Benjamin Britten, maybe. I don't think I've done a stage director. I want to get a designer into the OBS HMF. Well, now that we have a video a format, we can I, do that. But know, it's sort of visual... hard for the audio format. <laughs> <laughs> have to describe everything. There are people that are actually trained describers of theatrical events. Yeah, you know, so absolutely. You get one They're of critical yeah. to the to the process. Yeah, accessibility, buddy. Coming up next, the two minute drill. This just in the two minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. A small opening of the mouth can lead to the transport of exhaled air over distances larger than one meter. That data is part of the findings of a study about airflow in trained opera singers by Princeton University. Soprano Angel Blue and mezzo-soprano Isabel Leonard, along with members of the Met Opera Orchestra, participated in the ongoing study, the results of which will be released as they become available. The New York Philharmonic will miss an entire season for the first time in its 178-year history. Philharmonic President Deborah Borda projected a $30 million revenue loss due to pandemic-related cancellations over two seasons. To add to the pain, the planned renovation of David Geffen Hall will impact performances through February 2024. 
In this week's Anita update, the Georgian Mezzo announced this morning that a second colleague in La Scala's AIDA cast tested positive for COVID, requiring cast members to quarantine for two weeks and forcing the theater to cancel the opera. On Sunday, Jonas Kaufmann was announced as the replacement for Francesco Meli on the disabled list as the first cast member to test positive for the coronavirus. Rash Velishvili assured her followers that her COVID test came back negative. Our friends at Tapestry Opera have announced their fall 2020 season, comprising live, live streamed, and digital collaborations. Of the adapted season, artistic director Michael Mori says, we've been committed to staying positive and finding solutions that would be exciting for audiences and support as many artists as possible. Find out more at tapestryopera.com. Opera Theatre of St. Louis has announced a two-part 2021 season beginning with digital performances this winter, followed by an open-air festival season in the spring. Filmed reductions of The Pirates of Penzance and La Boheme, in addition to a triple bill of new works, make up part one. And the socially distanced live performances in the spring will include a double bill of William Grant Still's Highway 1 USA and Johnny Skeeky. The world premiere of the revised edition of Harvey Milk and the company's first Juneteenth concert. The 2021 Des Moines Metro Opera season features friends of the show Gary Thor Wado conducting Rameau's Plate with bass Zachary James as Jupiter. Marcus Shields directs fellow travelers with fellow OSEA cohort Joseph Latanzi as closeted McCarthy era State Department official Hawk Fuller, as well as productions of The Queen of Spades and Sweeney Todd. The three-week festival season begins, goddess willing, on July 2nd. The winners of the Opus Classique Awards, Germany's classical Grammy, classical Grammy equivalent, have been announced. Alina Garancha and Marlis Peterson have been named Female Singers of the Year. Daniel Bela is the Male Singer of the Year. You only need one. Detlev Glanert is named Composer of the Year for his opera Oceana. Noria Rial takes the Solo Opera Recital Prize while Diana Damrau takes the prize for Leader. The Classic Ona Grenzen Award goes to Jonas Kaufmann and friend of the show Rachel Willis Sorensen for their Viennese operetta and song album. The Opera de Lille production of Handel's Rhoda Linda starring Janine Beek and friend of the show Jakob Josef Orlinski wins the Opera Up To and Including the 18th Century Prize. While the Palazzetto Bruzzane 1859 version of Gounod's Faust wins the 19th Century Opera Prize, and Korngold's Das Wunder der Heliana from Deutsche Oper Berlin wins the award for opera from the 20th and 21st century. Lastly, soprano Elsa Dreisig and tenor Benjamin Bernheim are both named Newcomers of the Year. Bernheim scores the triple play for leading that Faust recording, being the Newcomer of the Year, and being our interview guest next week. In a follow to a previous drill, LA Opera has announced that it will kick off its streaming platform, On Now, with the company premiere of Joseph Bologna's The Anonymous Lover this November. LA Opera CEO Christopher Kelsch said the opera by the Black composer from the 18th century, quote, reminds us that artists of color have created, performed, and worked in the field of classical music for centuries, too often facing insurmountable odds. Later this month, Leos Janacek's opera The Macropolis Case will be performed in Geneva with Tomasz Netopil conducting a recording of the Suisse Romanda Orchestra. Due to the opera's heavy orchestration, which would not allow for appropriate social distancing, two speakers will replace the musicians in the pit. 
2020, the season that keeps on giving. Opera superfans Carolyn Starry and Marion Shalott have spent every evening for the past seven months enjoying the Mets' online nightly encore presentations. That's over 200 performances since the company began the free streaming service on March 16th. Since 2005, four to six singers have participated in Portland Opera's rigorous resident artist program, with the majority of its alumni now singing professionally with opera companies in the U.S. and abroad. For the 2020-2021 season, all five resident artists are singers of color. Congratulations to soprano Lanisha Crump, mezzo-soprano Jasmine Johnson, tenor David Morgan Sanchez, baritone Michael Parham, and bass Edwin Jamal Davis. Woohoo! One half of the first same-sex couple to be married at the Metropolitan Opera, Michael Fabiano's life story is now the subject of Crescendo, a new documentary short that will have its world premiere in November. The 10-minute film about the in-demand American tenor with a pilot's license will launch on Quibi on December 7th. Michael Fabiano is no longer married to marketing consultant Brian McAllister. Divorced. And on this day, October 19th, in 1701, La Purpura de la Rosa by Tomás de Torrejón y Valesco premiered in Lima, Peru, the first known opera to be composed and performed in the Americas. In 1739, it was the first performance of Ramos opera Dardanus. In 1845, the first performance of Wagner's Tannhäuser. In 1873 was the birth of Lithuanian opera composer Mikas Petrauskas. In 1875, it was the first performance of Offenbach's Offenbach's, that's the word I mess up, Offenbach. <laughs> La Boulangerie, La Boulangere à des Écus. Take two. In 1875, it was the first performance of Offenbach's La Boulangere à des Écus. In 1900 is the birth of German soprano Erna Berger. In 1934, it was the birth of American soprano Benita Valenti. In 1946, the birth of Peruvian tenor Ernesto Palacio in Lima, a great day for Lima. And in 1953, it was the birth of American tenor Eduardo Villa. And that is your two-minute drill. watching that video because it makes me think she's just smoked an enormous blunt before doing that <laughs> Princeton University study. Well, that that's the thing that, that for those of you who are listening to the audio only version, that was a clip from the uh, Princeton study collaboration that's with the Met. Uh, Isabel Leonard, Isabel Leonard and members singing. of the Met Orchestra in a lullaby by Barsay by, by Ganachian. Yes, and it's 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 basically showing um, uh, it's part of a study trying to figure out ways to get the Met essentially back to work and opera in in general. Uh, because as the Met Opera Orchestra pointed out on their Facebook page in the description of the video on YouTube, uh, uh, it's getting, uh, because they've been furloughed without pay for so long, almost a third of the uh, orchestra can't really afford to live in New York anymore. So bit of a problem there. Um, so I'll be very excited to kind of see these updates as they go along and really kind of the most artistic and kind of beautiful uh, uh, showing of results to a scientific study I've ever seen. 
Uh, it's it's equal parts anxiety inducing and really fascinating. Basically, they have a a camera that's picking up CO two as it falls out of your, their mouth um, uh, as they sing, and you can really see the the degree of control in her voice. And that's one thing that they've noticed in the study so far is that while it does project droplets, you know, farther than acceptable, the fact that opera singers have such control over their voices. Um, uh, they can really kind of keep the airflow to something of a minimum for that sort of sound being produced. So, Oliver, what's up with the NY Phil and the bus? Well, I mean, the the funny thing is that just a couple weeks ago, if you listened to Opera Box Score, you heard <laughs> us talk about Anthony Roth Costanzo's um, New, New York Philharmonic bus, where they were going out into various neighborhoods of uh, New York City and doing like I guess Arias by Handel, I don't know, chamber uh, and musicians from the Philharmonic, um, you know, performing the accompaniment and also playing small works. And I guess that's not enough uh, to make up a $30 million shortfall. <laughs> Alas. Get that organization another bus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Ashley, do you save receipts? Um, Not like Anita, apparently. Uh, <laughs> so you girl... Slash my girl, because I love Anita. I love Anita so much. Who I call her, in the most it? affectionate of terms, the human bullhorn. Um, but she she's <laughs> not going to get to sing uh, her Omneris at the moment because everyone around her except her has COVID. Um, and the reason we know that she doesn't is not only did she post on her Facebook page that she had a negative test. In the comment section, she posts something that says rachvelishvili.pdf, and it is her actual test result. So if that sort of stuff interests you, <laughs> hop on Facebook. Okay, so that's the thing. It's like, I love her. I'm crazy about her. But she has been out there performing like since this pandemic started. She has not lost any work, it seems like. She has not and, stopped. Uh, Everybody wants her, so good for her. But um, I'm been nervous for her. Like she just seems to just get out there, and and I don't want to say she's on the level of like a Natrepko with her carelessness, but it's been a little bit alarming. She's definitely less of a and, denier than Natrepko, right? Well, yeah. that's a fairly low bar, as we all know. <laughs> I, you know I, I've said my piece. I'm going to let y'all have this one. <laughs> but our thoughts go to uh, Francesco Melli, who was the first person in that Aida cast to test positive. And um, he's one of these weird singers that just pop out of nowhere. I mean, I'm sure he's had a career that's been taking years to develop, but we heard him for the first time in Chicago uh, singing Radames with Ricardo Muzzi and the concert version of Aida with Anita Rochefellishvili. And it's like, man, amazing. where did that voice come I out mean, of? Like, the only time I'd ever heard just, him before was on the Sonambula recording with Natalie Desay from like 2007. That is a quite a change in 13 years yeah, to go from Elvino to... A lot of steel in that voice and um, very old fashioned type of phrasing choices. And it just makes you feel like, what? And you have Anita as a nurse. Like, what decade are we in? Like, it's this crazy old school Aida. Oliver, lots of uh, friends of the show in uh, Des Moines. (laughs) I'm so happy about Des Moines. We have Marcus Shields, who was just on the show a couple of weeks ago, uh, directing fellow travelers with. Joseph Latanzi uh, in the cast of Fellow Travelers, um, who, if you watch Osea videos, is this very handsome baritone who has a very sexy voice. And, I remember um, yeah. Joseph Latanzi. He and I were at the Marilla program together. Great guest. Nice. And also Zachary James, one of our favorite interview guests, uh, singing Just in a that delight. production. And also a great Instagram page. Check it out. Yes. Oh, Zach, we love you. We miss you. <laughs> hmm. 
We're not going to talk about Opera Theater St. Louis because they're also friends of the show. Andrew Jorgensen was our guest at one point. They definitely are. I'm excited. They're doing Pirates. It's a great first opera. They're doing a 30-minute version uh, aimed at young audiences. I would I would definitely take my kids. Their triple bill has that. friend of the show Patricia Rossette in La Voix Men mm-hmm. and friend of the show Daniela Mack singing the Handel Lucrezia Cantata and the Monteverdi Combattimento di Tancredi in oh, Corinda. love that piece. Mm-hmm. And unlike in Geneva, they're all going to be in the same room for those performances and not doing that opera karaoke style like they have to do for the Macropolis case because the orchestra is just too rich. It has too many players. They cannot socially distance in the opera house. So they are going to have to record it in like what an airline hangar. Yeah, they're they're sort of like recording it uh, elsewhere and beaming it in. Uh, I mean, Janacek just did not consider pandemics when he was orchestrating this bad boy. Uh, but I, I kind of wanted uh, the reason I wanted to talk about it a little bit was n- not so much. Obviously, the pandemic is driving a lot of creativity, innovation, and you know, accepting a lot of limitations. But one of the things that um, I think Oliver also his his opera sense started tingling, as we know, on Broadway and many musicals. There's more and more singing off of tracks and uh, pre-recorded things. And uh, and while I don't think this is an indication that opera is going to fall down that pit, it's something that, by and large, we've managed to avoid thus far. Yeah. And this is music and theater. It's not. Exactly. Theater. Right. Yeah. And, and it, that that interaction between orchestra and singer is so special and so important and uh and impossible to plan out in advance and and have it be the same kind of satisfying opportunity which is also i'm a little bit surprised that they're not just going all the way and having the singers record their vocals too so that like everyone is really safe (laughs) um and also it seems like it would be easier for the singers to lay down the track at the same time that the orchestra is but i mean there might be other concerns there um ashley how about these two that are binge watching my ladies carolyn and marion they are crushing it um i was trying to come up with a joke that had to do with a playoff beard i haven't been able to find it but i know it's in there so at some point probably on instagram or twitter later this week i'm gonna come back with that joke and tell you how good it is 200 up or isn't that like a third of as many games as there are before the stanley cup finals All right. Final thoughts here, Matt Cummings. I mean, happy anniversary of the Tannhäuser riots, everyone. One of the famous <laughs> brouhaha's in music history where the Parisians uh, protested the fact that Wagner put the ballet right at the beginning of the opera instead of in Act 2 or 3 where they normally could show up to a little tipsy. That's such a French thing to uh, <laughs> to to write about. I kind of love that. <laughs> and, you know, we've been following Michael Fabiano's career as opera fans mm-hmm. since he was a contestant on the movie The Audition. And I think we had hints of his personality very early on in his career. And I stand him. I think he's a very exciting singer and he's very old school. He's kind of like got no fear and just goes for roles and phrases that people don't do anymore because they want to protect their voices. He doesn't seem to. And we won't hold Quibi against him. Well, that's the thing I wanted to bring up. I want to dunk on Quibi a little bit. Number one, it's Quibi. Let's go ahead and dunk on that right now. But number two, they went and had to have this little 10-minute Quibi documentary be named Crescendo, which is clearly a violation of copyright because when I was in college and doing my own radio show where I talked in a room for an hour about whatever I wanted to talk about, playing all my weird operas, the name of my radio show, 
crescendo. So cease and desist, Quibi. Cease and desist, Quibi. My lawyers will be contacting you shortly. Lawyer have- Fabiano. I I have no idea what this thing is that you're talking about. Let's wrap this show up. (laughs) Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. All right. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us. Wherever you are, however you've been listening, it's Good Call, Bad Call, Ashley Hargrave. My good call is David Byrne's American Utopia. It's directed by Spike Lee. It is a beautiful piece of theater that is so moving and lovely in a way that I was not expecting. Go. Go find it. If you're missing theater, if you're missing opera like I am, find a buddy with HBO, steal a password, whatever. Go watch David Byrne's American Utopia. Sounds like the uh, first responders didn't like that good call. I could hear the uh, sirens in the background (laughs) there. Or they were telling everyone, get Go up as fast as you can. <laughs> um, my, uh, I'm excited because today I went online and I bought Alex Ross's new book about Wagnerism, and that is the Ooh. only New Yorker writer that we will be talking about today. <laughs> and if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're lucky. <laughs> it's also 700 pages. Oliver Camacho. So my teenage fangirl gay fantasy came true last week. Um, when the King Singers collaborated with friend of the show Jakob Josef Berlinski for a socially distanced version a cappella of Purcell's music for a while. Let's hear just a little bit of it. I love him so much. Um, one of our most popular interview guests ever. It's I think it outpaces every episode of Opera Box Score, the Jakob Josef Berlinski, by like twofold. Until this one, obviously. Yeah, so go Thank back to the Dallas archives. Opera Network. <laughs> and here our conversation with Jakob Josef Berlinski, a really fun person, really sincere artist, and very good looking. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at normwaddell.com, N-O-R-M-W-O-O-D-E-L.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts on Twitter and Instagram. We're at Opera Box Score. You can email us, operaboxscore at gmail.com. A podcast version of our show and access to the complete OBS archives is available on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score would be totally cool. 
the creative consultant for Appa Box Scores, Oliver Camacho. For your co-hosts, Matt Cummings, Reston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you celebrate World Opera Day on Sunday, October 25. We're back with an all-new show next Wednesday, October 28, 9 p.m. Central, when we go inside the huddle with newcomer of the year, Benjamin Bernheim, and it's our annual Halloween Spooktacular. Tune in, if you dare. <laughs>